Please open to Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20. The Great Commission. Uh, perhaps a, a, a text of Scripture that you've read many times before and perhaps even heard preached on uh, several times in the past. I hope that we can come to it afresh and anew this morning as the Lord's Word is, is deep and profound and rich, full of meaning and significance for us and for our faith and for the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me read from uh, Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. I know it says in the bulletin 18 through 20, but I made a mistake. I'd like to start with 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. O Father in heaven, we come before you as you're gathered together as your covenant people to to render unto you worship and praise and adoration. Lord, we have an overwhelming sense of our need for your grace. We know that we are weak, that we struggle with sin, that we struggle with pride, that we struggle with um, the brokenness in the world, the suffering that we encounter, the hardships and the toils that we bear. And we know that sin has entered the world, but we also know that we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us and who has purchased us with His precious and holy blood, which can cleanse us from all sin. So we come before you rejoicing in the resurrection of Jesus. We've recently celebrated Easter. We remember the resurrection of Jesus. As we look at the Great Commission, coming on the heels of the resurrection, we thank you for his victorious power over sin and death. We pray that you'd strengthen us, that you'd speak to us this morning that you would give us grace and peace, not only through the preaching of your word, but through the whole worship service, Lord, and through the sacrament. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open up to us the understanding of your word and would apply it to our lives. And that you'd help me to speak clearly and to speak with your glory in mind, Lord, and to speak um, in a way that, that really is faithful to the text, Father. We pray that your presence will be with us even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, every organization has that which is central to it. Its mission statement, usually um, something to the core of its purpose. Whether it's a business, maybe perhaps a mission statement that speaks about its uh, uh, desire to be profitable and to uh, reach out to or uh, be profitable and to uh, be successful in meeting the needs of its constituents, of its shareholders, whether it be a political organization, uh, which is, or maybe a nonprofit, which helps people or, some, or goes for some cause. Every organization has that which is central to it. In fact, I have a statement such as that from the U.S. Border and Protections Mission Statement. Uh, having lived in Mexicali and near Tijuana and now that I'm in Tucson, uh, maybe it's relevant. You, you've probably seen the Border Patrol, Border Protection. It says, We are the guardians of the nation's borders. We are America's, America's front line 
We safeguard the American homeland at and beyond our borders. We protect the American public against terrorists and instruments of terror. We steadfastly enforce the laws of the United States while fostering our nation's economic security through lawful international trade and travel. We serve the American public with vigilance, integrity, and professionalism. So an example in modern day of uh, an organization with a mission statement. That's what's, what they're about. That's their reason for existence. That's how they operate. We might ask ourselves as the church the same question. What is central to the church? What is our mission? And even more uh, directly, what is the Great Commission? What is central to the Great Commission? Well, I would submit to you today that the Lord Jesus Christ is that which is central, not only to the church, but even to the Great Commission. After all, aren't we here and don't we exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? And isn't that what the grand plan of God has been all along, is to been to redeem a people through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who who was revealed at just the right time, the mystery that has been revealed to us, as it talks about in Ephesians. The Lord Jesus Christ is what all of Scripture speaks of. It's what Scripture leads up to, and it was the fulcrum and the high point of all history. And so the people of God in the Old Testament looked forward to that day when the Messiah would come, and the people of God today look backward to that event, or those events surrounding the birth, death, uh, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus and here we come to this great commission given directly after the resurrection of Christ. These were his last and greatest words to the church, and we would do well to heed them. We see, starting in verse 16 to 17, that Jesus, uh, the disciples went to the mountain that Jesus had directed them. After You'll remember, perhaps, that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to them briefly and said, I will meet you in a mountain in Galilee. So they go to the mountain, and sure enough, uh, they go there, and they see Jesus from a distance. Picture what it might have been like, perhaps a sunny day on rolling, in my imagination anyway, it's rolling hills with grass kind of blowing in the wind, uh, the sun's shining on the disciples' face. And what do they see? They see Jesus coming in all of his resurrected glory as a man, as the God-man having come. And he comes up to them, and what does it say that they do? It says, you'll notice in verse 17, it says that they saw him, and they worshipped him. And immediately, perhaps in the light of the resurrection, you might not be surprised that they worshipped him. But in light of the fact that here comes a man walking to them, you might be kind of surprised. The disciples are rendering worship to a man. The Old Testament, we know, says that there's only one God, that you are to bow down and to worship no other God besides your God, Yahweh. But the disciples immediately recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh. And we see here how Jesus, or we see here the centrality of Christ in the Great Commission here in these verses. First, in the, or based, the first point I'd like us to consider today is that we see it in, the, in, the, uh, in his person and office. And here we see it in his person as the Son of God, God the Son, come in the flesh. Enrique was mentioning uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see that Jesus came down out of heaven as the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, having existed from all eternity, who had come to dwell among us. And we even see that in John chapter 1, verse 14, that 
He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. That He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus indeed is, is God the Son in the flesh. You'll notice in verse 19, even this text teaches this furthermore, not only in the sense that they worshipped Him and He didn't rebuke them, but also in verse 19 where He says, Go therefore make disciples. But He says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we see that Jesus immediately puts Himself on the same level as the Father and the Holy Spirit. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, three persons, one God. And Jesus is that second person, the Son. And this is a glorious doctrine that we believe. It's a mystery that we can't really comprehend, but we know there's only one God and three persons. And Jesus is central in the sense that He, being part of the baptismal formula in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus is central to that great commission wherever that great commission goes throughout the whole earth, throughout all of time. Jesus is central to it. Everywhere where people are baptized and made disciples, they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we see the centrality of Christ in His person as the Son. We also see it in, in His person, or I mean in His office, sorry. Uh, in that sense that Jesus is the King of kings. You'll notice in verse 18 that Jesus says that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And we immediately see that Jesus, having come and having served and having suffered and died and was buried and he was raised again, the Father has given the kingdom into his hand so that he might continue to build his church and to continue his work of redemption throughout the earth. And Jesus takes upon that authority. In Romans chapter 1, we see that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. Not in the sense that he wasn't the Son before, but in the sense that now all the world can see that Jesus is the Son of God and that his resurrection has vindicated him. And that, yes, he is the Son of God who has taken up that authority. So what is the scope of that authority? He says it is all in all of heaven and all of earth. Brothers and sisters, there's nowhere in the world where Jesus does not have authority. We see that in the world today that people don't always recognize Jesus' authority. Certainly there are whole groups, of whole continents of, of other religions, Buddhism, Islam come to mind, other religions. Certainly there are many atheists, and we see whole world movements of atheism and secularism and Marxism in the history of the world that have attempted to reject God. I wanted to read to you uh, Psalm chapter 2. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome. Psalm chapter 2. We see that this is a psalm which get, presents to us how the world does not recognize the authority of the Son. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take themselves counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. 
You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We see in this psalm a picture of God the Father giving the authority to Jesus the Son, which we see the fulfillment of here in Matthew 28, 18-20, that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And the nations, it is to their benefit and to their well-being that they acknowledge and recognize that Jesus is indeed the one who is the King. And we don't say lightly that the ones who reject Jesus are in terrible, terrible situation of facing future judgment. That breaks our hearts as Christians. We want to see and we want to pray for those people around the world who don't know Christ, to see them repent, even people whom we think of as wicked, people, terrorists or drug lords or you know people who have committed genocide. We pray for our enemies. We pray that God would grant them repentance, that they would say, no, what I did was wrong. I cry out for forgiveness to God, and the grace of the Lord will cover them through the blood of Jesus. That's why God here in Psalm 2 says to to the nations, kiss the Son. In other words, recognize His rightful rule and authority. Not only the nations, but on an individual level. Have we as Christians recognized the Lord's authority in our lives? We pray in the prayer of confession we often forget that Jesus truly has authority in our lives. We live our lives, make our decisions based upon what we want, what we desire. And sometimes we don't even bring it before the Lord in prayer. But I encourage all of us to really think about that anew and to really seek the Lord in all that we do and follow Him. Well, not only do we see the centrality of Christ in uh, the Great Commission in terms, of his, uh, in terms of His person and His office, but secondly, we see the centrality of Christ in His command. Uh, look with me at verse 19. It says here, uh, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here we see in this text there's only one command form of the verb in Greek uh, in the Greek language. In the Greek, you can tell what a command is just by looking at the way, the way it's spelled. And here, the only command that we have is to make disciples. And so that's the overarching command here. That's what Jesus is essentially saying. He's saying, make disciples. That's what Jesus wants us to do in the Great Commission. He wants His church to make disciples. He wants us to make disciples. We might ask our, ourselves the question, what is a disciple? Basically, a disciple is a learner. Somebody who learns who sits at the foot of the teacher and learns. Jesus is no ordinary teacher. Most of us have sat under the teaching of somebody, maybe a professor or a teacher or somebody who's taught us our job, our vocational skills. The disciples would have sat under perhaps rabbis or others. But when Jesus came, he was no ordinary rabbi, teacher. He was God in the flesh. God the Son, having come, having come to be the king over all the earth. And Jesus says, make disciples, make followers of Jesus Christ. Make those who will submit to Jesus' authority, who will love Him, who will praise Him, who will adore Him and seek His face. 
That's who Jesus wants, or that's what Jesus wants us to do, is to make disciples. And Jesus is, of course, doing it throughout, through the church. Well, I know I said that's the only command, but I lied. There is another command in the passage. Uh, in the Greek language, uh, it doesn't always have to be in the exact command form to be to have command force. And we see another verb here. Uh, it says in verse 18, or 19, I'm sorry, it says he starts off with saying, go, therefore, and make disciples. And so the go takes up kind of the, uh, the sense of the command, and he says, go and make disciples. So that can be thought of as maybe a secondary command that God wants us to do. He assumes that as we make disciples, we're not going to sit still. We read, just read in Acts chapter 1 uh, that God said that uh, the disciples, or Jesus said that the disciples would be uh, witnesses to uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus doesn't want us to sit still. He cares about the other ethnic groups like Enrique was sharing. Uh, he cares about the people who live in Tucson but he cares about the people who live in the nations all over the world. And so he wants us to go. And so basically what we learn from that is that every New Testament church ought to be a sending church. Sending ought to be part of what we do as the church. Sending people to evangelize the lost, to make disciples, in other words, and to share the gospel. Recently, I was reading about the history of the church in Brazil, and the church in Brazil is today is three times the size of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church there. And I read about the history of the church in Brazil, and in the 1800s, in 1859, a young man went to Princeton Seminary, and he studied with Charles Hodge. Some of you may have heard of him. And he went to a chapel, and he heard a sermon by Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge talked about missions and about serving the Lord, and this young man, whose name was Ashbel Green Simonton, felt the call of God to go to the missions field. So he embarked to Brazil. He came back about a year later, I think, on, on furlough and met his wife and got married, went back to Brazil. And though he only lived for a short number of years, maybe eight years longer, I think, uh, he, he contracted yellow fever and died on the missions field, gave his life for Christ, essentially. God used him to establish the first Presbyterian church in Brazil, the first Presbyterian seminary in Brazil, and the fir- helped organize the first Presbyterian presbytery in Brazil, which then went on later on after his death to become the, pre- the Presbyterian church in Brazil, which today is three times as large as the PCA. And so, and is sending missionaries out to other countries like Panama and Uruguay and all over the world. And so God can use people who go. And God can use people who help send them, who help pray for them, and who help support them in their mission. But when we say that that Jesus is central in the command, why is it that we say he's central to the command? Two reasons. One is, first of all, because Jesus is the one who gives the command. Okay, Jesus is the king, and he gave the command. That's why he's central. But secondly, it's because of this very precious promise that we find in verse 20, that Jesus is with us, with the church, with us as the church and as individuals, as we carry out this command. It says, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. You know, when my wife was in labor about three weeks ago, um, I was trying to encourage her. She was in a lot of pain. She was kind of panicked, you know, um, a lot of suffering. Um, and I quoted to her, you know, the verse in Hebrews that says, the Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. That was a precious promise that really helped her in her labor time. 
And Jesus is in essence saying the same thing here. He's saying, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And in particularly in this mission, in this task of the Great Commission, in all of the work of the church, the spiritual mission of the church to make disciples, to teach the people to command, uh, obey the commands, I am with you even to the very end of the age, the extent of which is forever. Jesus will never leave us, never forsake us. He's with us today. He's with you today even when you feel like he's not. Like I shared earlier, I was going through times of a trial, wondering, where are you, Lord? You know, what are you calling us to? Which missions field? Why are you silent? But the Lord had never left me. He was there. And it's the same as we want to reach out to people with the gospel. We feel like they're just not listening. We invite people to Bible study. They don't come. You call them up. They, they come once, but they're like, well, I didn't get off work on time. Whatever. We try to share the gospel with our neighbors. They're like, don't talk to me about religion. You know, if you want to talk about sports, that's okay or whatever. But don't talk to me about God. How many people are hard-hearted? But be encouraged that the Lord is with you. That He's strengthening you, but He's also at work in their lives. That when you pray for them, that God is sovereign, that He can change their hearts. That perhaps remember, maybe some of you were darkened at one time. You didn't know Christ. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Perhaps some of you can't remember that because you were raised in a Christian home. But you can identify with it. And God can break through the hardest heart of sinners. You'll remember the Apostle Paul who was a murderer who went around arresting Christians and throwing his lot in for them to be executed. But God broke his heart and he became Christian. And God can do it to even the hardest of sinners. Sometimes the most vociferous atheists are the ones that are kicking against the goads, as it were. Not coming to Christ, but God is the one. God is actually working in their lives, and suddenly the light turns on, and they're like, "You know what? I was just, you know, rebelling against God, and uh, He was really drawing me in, and I just wasn't open to it." But finally, the Lord just opened His heart, and He became Christian. And so, it's encouraging to know that Jesus is with us even to the end of the age. But the, another question we want to ask ourselves is: if we're making disciples and going, where are we to go, and of whom are we to make disciples? Well, you'll see here in verse um, in verse nineteen, Jesus says, "Go therefore and make disciples, or make, therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them." And so we are to go to every nation. And we read in in, uh, in the in the scripture reading this morning, uh, Genesis chapter twelve, one through three where God gave a promise way back thousands of years before Jesus was born, that in, a- in Abraham, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. What does that mean in Abraham? Well, God is basically saying that God would raise up a descendant, a seed from Abraham, who would come and who would be the Messiah, the anointed one, who we read about in Psalm chapter 2, the anointed one, the one who's been given all authority in heaven and earth. And he's the promised one. It says, all that share in the same faith of Abraham are also part of the same covenant that God made with Abraham. And so we're, we who have been grafted in as Gentiles, unless there's any Jewish people here, uh, we're grafted into that same covenant, and we belong to Jesus now. And no matter what nation we're from, whatever your nation, national background, whatever your ethnicity, and, and by extension, whatever uh, nations there are around the world who still haven't heard of the gospel, they also are welcome to the kingdom of God. 
God says, Jesus says, all who come to me are welcome. I will not turn anyone away. And we know that Christ is, is raising up for himself a people from every nation, every tongue, every tongue, every tribe, every people group. And we've seen that throughout the world. We see that now there are Christians in every nation of the world. There are many unreached people groups within those nations because there's ethnically, linguistically distinct peoples that need the gospel. They need Bible translation. They need missionary church planning teams. They need the gospel. There's also more reached people that have become post-Christian. Places like Western Europe, uh, Uruguay, um, other places where uh, they have had Catholicism or Christianity in the past, but today they're hard-hearted. They're atheistic. They're secular. They don't believe in God. They think the Bible is fairy tales. But you and I know that the Bible is real, that God has opened our eyes and the scales have been removed. So we should pray for those people around the world that their eyes might be opened as well to the good message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that Jesus is central to the Great Commission. And that's central to the church. And we th- here we also see, thirdly, that this, uh, the centrality of Christ in His Word and Sacrament. If you look at, with me at verse 20, uh, we see that uh, we see this in verse 20. What he says is to make disciples, but he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You might ask yourselves, what is it that we're supposed to teach the nations while we're going, while we're making disciples? What is it that we're supposed to be teaching? Well, certainly, number one, we should be teaching the gospel message that Christ died for sinners and that he's gracious. And there'll be a day appointed for judgment and that Christ has been raised from the dead and he calls people to himself. That's the gospel message. But I don't think that Jesus simply meant that. He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. This little word all makes all the difference, right? Um, Certainly we want to preach the gospel, but Jesus does not call us to make converts. He doesn't call us to evangelize the lost, simply speaking. Of course, we need to do that to make disciples, and it's very important. But not only that, we don't stop there. We want to make disciples of all nations, teach them the full counsel of God. Today, there's this kind of the spirit of the age of of what I like to call the lowest uh, common denominator Christianity, where we've uplifted uh, personal relationships to such a level where we're almost afraid to emphasize our particular doctrinal distinctives. And so what I would submit to you today is the church that we ought to be careful to proclaim the full counsel of God's Word, not only the gospel, certainly band together with other Christians to share the gospel, but in doing so in loving ways, compare with other Christians and say, this is what we believe and this is what you believe. Don't be afraid of of what you believe the Bible teaches because this is the whole counsel of God, the Bible. Jesus wants us to proclaim and preach and teach the whole Bible and all of the commandments and all of the truths and all of the doctrines of the Scriptures. God did not give us a Scripture just to ignore 90% of it, but to dig deep and to teach it to others. And so we need to see that in the missions field today. In fact, in Latin America, I was reading an article about the need for theological education and, and uh, deeper understanding of doctrine in, in Latin America. Uh, the Christianity has been said by a number of people to be a mile wide and an inch deep in many parts of the world. And perhaps we can say the same thing about America. I don't know. But uh, we need to learn the deep truths of God's Word, the truths that, that, that Christianity involves suffering for the Lord, the truths that Jesus is sovereign 
uh, the truths that He's a gracious God, that we're not saved by our works. There's so many doctrinal truths that we, we have as Reformed Christians a unique ability to articulate to the culture at large and to the nations of the world. In Latin America, there is a dearth of Reformed Christianity. Uh, in America, we, uh, the Reformed Church used to be the majority, uh, whereas today it's the minority. But I think that these truths of the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God, uh, the, what Calvin did in reforming uh, Christian worship, and, and the centrality of God uh, are all important doctrines that we bring with us as missionaries, both through our own culture here in the United States as well as to the world and to the nations. And so my prayer is that God would raise up a new generation of Reformed Christians. Um, I was influenced by the ministry of Ligonier Ministries. I was also uh, influenced by Michael Horton and the White Horse Inn and, so, and uh, some ministries that... Uh, that had, been, had a big inf- impact on me. Well, in the Latin American world, they don't have Table Talk magazine. They don't have Ligonier Ministries. There are a few ministries. We have the Central American Partnership of Churches that are Reformed and so forth, and they have a magazine journal. But I think that we need to... Uh, there's a great need to bring out the message, not only of the Gospel, but of the, of the deep and profound truths of the Scripture. And, and not just... Uh, the controversial issues that we, we maybe the hot-button issues of Reformed Christianity, but the great breadth of the Reformed confessions of faith that we, we acknowledge, that many of which we share in common with other Christian bodies. And these, same Christian, these other Christian bodies acknowledge many of these same truths, but we're not handing it to the people. We're not discipling them in the ways that we ought to. And so my prayer and my great desire is to see more people in, in the nations of the world be equipped and to be to learn the, the scriptures deeply and to, to really dive into the scriptures. And so, as a church, we need to be careful to do that. And we so we see here the, uh, the centrality of Christ in His Word, but we also see it in this, uh, the centrality of Christ in His sacrament. So, as we're going, as we're making disciples, as we're teaching them, He also wants us to baptize. It says, "Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit." And perhaps you know that the Reformers, how they describe baptism, how they describe the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, as uh, the Word made visible. So it's just another category of preaching the Word, basically. Uh, we cannot do their sacraments apart from the Word. So when we baptize people, it's in the context of the church, and it's, it's in- inherently ecclesiastical, because the church has been given the authority by God to institute baptism or to uh, initiate baptism in the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's also a way of pic- Christ picturing what He does for us in salvation through baptism and through the Lord's Supper. And so the bap- baptism is so important. And so we want to have a church today that, is, that upholds the Word of God but also takes a higher view of the sacraments. Not the same view as may, perhaps the Roman Catholic Church that believes that when you administer the sacrament, it just works mechanically. Like when you do it, it actually just happens every time. But we believe as uh, Reformed Christians that the sacraments have to be combined with faith. And that when, when it's combined with faith and it's God in it, uh, instituting the sacrament, that His grace is extended to the believer. And so we want to be a church that takes a higher view of God's Word as well as the sacrament.
And you know, this is this sacrament of baptism is, is an interesting one because it's one that kind of divides us from a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, that's what I was talking about uh, earlier. Don't be afraid of, of your Baptist brothers and sisters. Uh, I think that we can have lots of fellowship with them, but you know. The fact that we believe that we can baptize uh, our, our infants because they're part of the God's covenant. Uh, they are brought into the covenant community through this uh, baptism, just as Abraham's children were brought in through the covenant of circumcision. Um, it's an interesting topic that divides us oftentimes, but it's actually, I believe, an important, uh, an important doctrine, which really this passage doesn't bring out the, the whole question of infant baptism. We can go into a whole other sermon about that. But I just encourage you not to be afraid of learning more about it and of even interacting with people that you know that are friends of yours from other Christian groups. And they too can interact with you as well. And so, in light of the fact that this Great Commission is actually the central mission of the church, I would submit to you that what the church should be about today is about making disciples for Christ. We're basically, the, the, our desire as the church is to glorify God. It's, this, it's the institution that God established on the earth to be a place where God, our covenant God, meets with his covenant people. It's also a place where we proclaim the gospel to the lost. And so the church should be essential in our thinking, and the Great Commission should be central in our practices. The church, I believe that it's good to do mercy ministries, to love our neighbors as we fulfill the, the, the greatest commandment to love our neighbors. But let us not lose sight of the central goal of the church, which is basically the, to proclaim the gospel to the lost. If we don't do it, who will? If we don't proclaim the gospel to the lost, who will? And God has equipped us to be a vessel by which we can share the gospel with the lost and make disciples. So I'd ask you to think about your own life. Think about your own church. How are the ways where, in which God can use you to be part of fulfilling the Great Commission? How might you be a witness for Christ? Do you have neighbors that you can get to know? Enrique was talking about making friends and, and developing relationships with people. Having Bible studies at their home uh, is... Perhaps maybe God can open the door for you to have a Bible study with your neighbor or with your coworker. You know, it, it doesn't have to be a, a deep Bible study. You just open up the Word, read some scriptures together, talk about the gospel message. And uh, it's, it's, as Enrique was sharing, it's a blessing just to see people open up the Bible for themselves. I remember when I was in Mexicali and this new couple came to the church, a little bit older couple. Their children were adults. Um, and the wife had been Christian, but the husband hadn't been attending church, and they found our church in Mexicali. So I started meeting at their house for Bible study. Just with the husband, I started discipling him. And he just had so many questions. He would ask about this, about everything, about the sacraments, about baptizing your kids, you know, all kinds of things like that, and uh, about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I was able to share with him. And then pretty soon his wife was like, can I join you? you know, and so I was teaching him and his wife together. And it was just a wonderful blessing. And so perhaps there's opportunities like that for you in your, in your community. Um, what about people from other cultures? I know it can be intimidating, but we learned this morning in Sunday school, there's ways to learn how about be more sensitive to other cultures, uh, learning. I remember when I was in church one time, when I first moved to Mexicali, and I shook, shook a couple people's hands, and then I sat down. 
And um, somebody said, why didn't you greet me? And they were offended. It's because in Mexican culture, you have to go and you shake everybody's hand around the room because it's rude if you don't. So at least two-thirds of the room, you know. Um, or, you know, uh, there's another time when I asked a man about, you know, who was building the fence in the, in the, at the church, and I said, well, when are you going to be done with that? And, and he kind of took offense to that because I was so direct. Like, when are you going to be done with that? And, she, you know, there's ways to learn how to be more culturally sensitive. But don't be afraid to make mistakes. I mean, even though I made those mistakes, over time they got to know me. They knew I wasn't a rude guy. They knew, well, he's just the American guy, whatever, you know. And so, uh, you know, they got over that. And I think you can get away with a lot. But there will be times when you offend. But just be gracious and say, I'm so sorry I I was offensive. Um, I didn't know. Or tell me how I can do it differently next time. And so, um, you know, don't be afraid, like Enrique was saying today, when Mexican people come up and they'll, they'll give you big hugs or, uh, you'd be very, like, you know, touchy-feely, you know, shaking your hand and putting their arm around you. That's normal uh, for their culture. Now, other cultures, like Asian cultures, that's not normal. You don't walk up to an Asian person and start, you know, hugging them and stuff. Um, that would be more, like, forward. And so you just got to kind of know the people around you, try to get to know them. But basically, when you, when you have relationships with people, God will give you wisdom on how to do that. Um. Uh, one thing that I, I wanted to mention about uh, ethnic food is as people serve to you food, you might not like it at first. But as I was sharing with somebody today, I lived in Mexico for a year before I even liked Jamaica. Jamaica is like a purplish kind of a sweet, cold sweet tea type from a hibiscus leaf. And so um, I didn't like it for the first year. But after that, I did. So you, you, know, you might be surprised at what God does to help you to learn to like something new. Maybe you'd like to offer to help somebody teach, uh, to teach them English. That could be another way to reach out to people, um, either as a church or as individuals in your community. And what about this whole idea of the centrality of Christ in the Great Commission? Certainly we're focused on loving others, bringing the gospel to people who don't know Christ. But let us not forget that Christ is the reason why we're doing it. Christ is the one that we're to uphold as the glorious one. He's the one that we are to worship. Do we worship Christ? We read here that the disciples came to Jesus, or Jesus came to the disciples, and they worshipped him. Do we worship Christ? Do we remember that? Do we call others in our circles to worship Christ? I don't know about you. I've been convicted that I need to be more forward with people in the community. Sometimes it's really hard. You know, you're at the grocery store and you want to share the gospel, but... You only have like a minute. What do you say? Um, you know, per, ask God for wisdom how to do that. I'm, I'm asking, I'm struggling with that myself. How do you do that? Uh, that's the wonderful thing about personal evangelism, about sharing with your neighbors and having Bible study at their house. That's a little bit easier because you know them. But it's harder when you're with, with strangers sometimes. But we, are we calling others in our circles to worship the Lord? Do we acknowledge Christ's authority in our lives? What about his authority over our finances? over our family. You know, missionaries that are thinking about going overseas, one of the biggest struggles, and I can testify, is, is how is God going to take care of our family? What, what are we going to do when we have to sell most of our stuff and rebuy everything in a new country? You know, what, what, are we going to be able to live in a city where we're accustomed to living in the suburbs? There's a lot of questions like that. But when we realize God's sovereignty, His authority over all things... That brings us comfort. 
that God is the one who's our covenant God and who cares for us, who takes care of us, and that He has authority over all. And so wherever we go, whether we go to the grocery store and it seems like nobody wants to hear about Christ because we're all just into doing our own thing and it's only when something tragic happens in people's lives often, too often, that they think about Christ. And then you can be a resource for them. But when they don't want to hear it at the grocery store, remember that Christ is an authority. He's with you wherever you go. When your family members come for Thanksgiving and they're openly atheist and they hate Christianity or whatever, whatever your personal experiences have been, remember that Jesus is with you and that He's not only with you, but He's the King who sits on the throne. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we acknowledge You, our Father, as the great covenant God, the One who sent His only, one, only begotten Son, who sacrificed and who was about the business of redeeming a people for Himself. We thank You, Jesus, that You came and that You suffered and died and was raised from the dead. We thank You that You even now sit upon the throne. We thank You, Holy Spirit, that You bring people to faith in Christ and that You lift Him up so that people might worship Him. We pray that our hearts also would be enraptured in praise and adoration of of our Lord Jesus. We pray that You give us a heart for the lost. Not only a heart for our Lord Jesus, but a heart for the peoples and the nations of the world as they are lost in darkness. We thank You for the light that shines out even in the midst of darkness. In Jesus' name, Amen.